Well, I remember well my first Bible, the first Bible that belonged to me that I bought with my own money that my mom had given to me because she gave me the money to, to buy a Bible. I had been asking uh, for a Bible. And this goes back really to when I was uh, a lot younger. My first Bible was probably fifth grade, if I remember correctly. But way before that, I remember one day asking my mom, asking her, what does it mean when uh, my dad was a pastor? So I'd hear my dad preach. I'd say, what does it mean when, he, when, when dad says, a, a book of the Bible, and he says some numbers. What do those numbers mean? And I remember she uh, put her arm around my shoulder and she took me, we went and sat down and she took the Bible and she explained the whole chapter and verse. And so I, okay, so I figured that out. So fast forward, I wanted my own Bible. And so my mom saved up some money and, and she gave it to me one morning on my way to school. And, and she said, don't lose this money. You can buy your Bible with this. And so I went to school and she told me on the way home, stop by the bookstore. There was a bookstore on the way home. This is back in the day when we walked to school. You know, we were kids. We are in elementary school. We just walked to school. How many remember those years? Yeah. We would just walk to school. And on the way home, there was a, there was a Bible bookstore. It was called The Good Book. The owner's name was Frank Field. And older, well, everybody was older to me back then. So he owned this bookstore. It's called The Good Book. And uh, so I was so excited that day. All day I'd put my hand in my pocket and I'd feel the dollar bills. I think it's still there. I don't know how I didn't lose it in recess and all that. But sure enough, the time came. We uh, schooled it out and I started walking home. And, I, you know, I'd go down First Street and then turn on Bank Street. And so and I got to the good book and I went in and, and told um, the owner, Brother Field, Frank Field, I told him that I wanted to buy a Bible. And he says, what kind of Bible do you want? I said, I don't know. I just, I just want a Bible that I can read. And so he, I remember he was so patient with me, very patient with me. He, he, he pulled out a, a King James Bible. He says, here's, let me show you the King James Bible. And he went to Matthew 1 and where it has all the begats, you know, all the begats and so-and-so begats, so-and-so begats, so-and-so. He says, that's, what, that's how that reads. And then he took out a, a paperback Bible, which was a good news Bible. This is called the Good News Bible. And he, and he said, now let me show you how the good news reads. Matthew 1. And so-and-so was a father of so-and-so who was a father of so-and-so. He says, so this is easier for you to understand. I said, yeah, that's a lot easier. And then, just a bonus, the Good News Bible had little cartoon drawings. I thought, that's perfect. <laughs> I was still a kid, you know. So, I, so I, that was my first Bible. I was so excited I had the money for it. And uh, ever since that time, you know, it, God has just uh, showed me so much through his word. And I remember my first, my first study Bible was given to me by my sister Velma. It was a, a Schofield study Bible. I was a teenager. And so um, God's word is still around today. It was so meaningful to me back then as a child. Now, of course, I understand it at a deeper level. And but, but the impact it continues to have on me is unchanging. Well, I tell you that story because today, as part of our series uh, of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, I want to talk to you about why the right view of Scripture matters. Why the right view of Scripture matters. And I just realized I forgot to turn on my timer. So you guys are in trouble. 
Not really. Although I have a lot of information I want to share with you today. But uh, what I want to do is I want to answer the question, how should we as believers view Scripture? How should we as believers view Scripture? Because how we view Scripture matters. It matters greatly. It matters to you and me. It matters to our families. It matters to our children. So we're going to read from Matthew chapter 5. And by the way, we're not on Version Bible app today. Normally, you can find our notes on the Version Bible app. We're not on there today, but we're only going to read one passage. We're not going to jump around. So you can just turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5.17. Matthew 5.17. Now the reason, and we're going to read from 17 through 20. But the reason that, that I, I want to cover this, because of what Jesus taught in the Sermon of the Mount, and because I understand that many believers have differing, differing views about the Bible. I love what, uh, I, I, and I'm going to read you a quote, something that I found in, in my sermon prep by Scott McKnight. Scott McKnight is a, a New Testament scholar. And uh, he, he wrote something about the different views that Christians have uh, of Scripture, how they read the Bible. So let me just let me just read you this quote. It's a little bit long, but I think it'll uh, it'll keep your attention. So he wrote this: How do church folks read the Bible? And then he answers: Some people read the Bible formationally; they read it with a heart open to receive from God at a spiritual, intuitive, devotional, and relational level. That's formationally. And he says, others read the Bible informationally. They read it to know what it said. And, and these people have acquired the original languages so they can examine the tenses, the cases, and all the sentence structure. Then he says, others read the Bible canonically. In other words, they read it with their ears open to the rest of the Bible. How does it fit in to the entire Bible? Then he says, others read the Bible historically. They only want to know what Jesus' intent was in his world or what Matthew's intent was in his context. Then he says, others read the Bible socio-pragmatically. Socio socio they read it to foster and to further their own political, theological, ideological, or social agenda. Others read the Bible according to what their guru says. They read it according to how their favorite teacher or leader or prophet teaches the Bible. And as I read that, I thought, that's, that's so true. I, I mean, everybody reads the Bible a little bit differently, depending, you know, on, you know, maybe their, their background or they heard some teacher that, oh, that he's the best. And so everything is what this teacher says. I, I've had people in my years of ministry tell me, you should listen to this preacher because he really or this teacher, he, he really has it right. So the question is, you know, how do, how do we view the Scripture? And I think to answer that question, we have to start with the, the, another question, which is, what did Jesus believe about Scripture? What did He believe about Scripture? And so we're going to read here from uh, Matthew 5.17 and uh, learn from this passage, uh, this teaching of Jesus, uh, how we should view Scripture. So Matthew 5, 17, first of all, reads like this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to 
fulfill them. So the first thing I want us to see this morning, and I'm just drawing this from Scripture, is that the right view of Scripture recognizes that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. See, Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill them. And I don't know if it had to do with the fact that because of his teaching, the way that he taught his listeners, certainly his opponents, we might even say his enemies, the religious leaders, were accusing him that he was trying to abolish the law of Moses. You know, they held the law of Moses in, in, in high regard. So he says, look, I don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. And as many of you know, any reference in the, in the Gospels to the law or the prophets is a reference to the entire body of the Old Testament. He says, I didn't come to abolish them, but I came to fulfill them. Now, this is difficult this is difficult because in some ways, it's obvious that Jesus did abolish some of the law. This is why we're no longer under any kind of food laws today. We can eat bacon. Right? We can eat pork. We're no longer under any, any kind of food laws. We're no longer any, under any kind of ceremonies. We don't have any kind of grain offering that we wave before the Lord. We certainly don't sacrifice any animals. You know, there's some crazy Pentecostals out there that handle snakes and they should sacrifice them, but they don't. But we don't do we don't do animal sacrifices anymore. So, you know, we don't celebrate the, the, the Sabbath the way that it was taught in the Old Testament. So in a, in a way, he did abolish some of the law. So what did he mean when he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it? I think it's important to, and helpful to understand that the word fulfill has the idea of completion, of filling up, of accomplishing. So he fulfilled it. And some people think that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament by teaching the true meaning. Like he just, he, he just clarified what the true meaning was or, or he simply obeyed the law. But in Matthew, because this word fulfilled is not found here for the first time, but through the beginning parts of Matthew, we read that word fulfilled and, and using scripture uh, to interpret scripture in Matthew, the word fulfill refers to a completion, uh, specifically completion in the future. In other words, I believe what he's trying to say here is that everything in history reaches its completion. And certainly at that point, it had reached its completion in Jesus. Everything in the past reached its completion in Jesus, including his life, death, his resurrection, his teachings. So think for a moment about how amazing that statement is that Jesus makes because he's saying that he fulfilled what the Torah and what the prophets predicted and what they taught in terms of salvation, in terms of theology, in, term, in terms of morals. That's pretty remarkable for someone to say that. You know, if Jesus had said, I can do miracles like Elijah performed miracles, or I can predict the future like Isaiah and other prophets, or I can do miracles as astounding as Moses. He doesn't just say that. He goes a step beyond and he says, I'm the fulfillment of the Torah and of the prophets. And this changes everything for us. Because now the Old Testament represents Jesus. His claim is very Jewish, but it's also a claim about being the Messiah uh, for the Jews. So I think the first lesson we, we learned from 
from Scripture, from our uh, correct view of Scripture, is to see that Jesus is a main character in the story of the Bible. He's a main character from beginning to end. So the right view of Scripture recognizes that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. Number two, the right view of Scripture recognizes the perseverance and authority of Scripture. The right view of Scripture recognizes the perseverance and authority of Scripture. We find this in verse 18. Look at Matthew 5:18. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He's talking about the perseverance of Scripture and the authority until everything is accomplished. Sometimes people make arguments that the Bible has been tampered with. Have you ever heard this from somebody who says, I, I don't believe the Bible. They say it's been tampered with. Or sometimes they argue that specific books have been lost or that the, the copies that we have now are not correct. But Jesus taught that God would preserve the Bible even down to the tiniest letter, even down to the, least, to the smallest at least stroke of a pen. In fact, Peter said in 1 Peter 1.25 that the word of the Lord endures forever. That's a powerful uh, verse. That's a, a, a powerful teaching. The word of the Lord endures forever. And all we have to do is look at all the attempts throughout history to destroy God's word to know that this is true, that Peter is right. Because the Bible has endured constant criticism throughout history from the science community, from the historical community. The Bible has endured manipulation from cults, from false prophets, some even today. The Bible has been burned and has been banned by entire nations, and yet it still endures today as the Word of God. The Bible has been uh, is the most copied, the most printed, the most translated, the most sold, most often sold book every year, every single year. But what I want to talk to you today here for a little bit is about the historical reliability from the standpoint of the historical excuse me, reliability. We know that the Bible is the most accurate, the most accurate ancient manuscript. In fact, there is more historical evidence for the Bible than any other ancient manuscript that you might have studied in high school or, or in college. There is a test that historians use called the bibliographic test. The bibliographic test determines the accuracy of comments. I hope I don't lose you here, so, so stay focused on this. this is, I think this is really important and it's fascinating. Uh, the bibliographic test determines the accuracy of the copies because obviously the more accurate the copies of the original documents and the closer they reflect the reality of what actually happened. So to do this, to do this, we have to know two things. We have to know two things. How much time elapsed between the original and the oldest copy of a manuscript? How much time elapsed between the original and the oldest a copy of the manuscript. And the second thing we need to know is how many copies exist? How many copies exist of the original manuscript? 
So common sense tells us that the closer the copies are in time to the original, then the more reliable they're likely to be. And the more copies there are, then the easier it is to catch any changes that have been made. So let's talk about the first one. The difference in time between the original and the oldest copies. All right, so to put the original gospel documents and their copies in perspective, let's compare them to some other ancient documents and their copies. Some of these you may have heard of in your studies. If we take a representative sample of ancient literature, I'm talking about uh, authors like Plato, Aristotle, Tacitus, uh, Sophocles, Homer, and, and many others. On the average, on the average, the oldest copies that we possess today of these ancient writers, the oldest copies were made about a thousand years after the original. So these writers wrote the original documents and uh, the oldest copies that we uh, possess of, the, of those writings are a thousand years removed from the originals. So for example, Plato. Plato lived and he wrote around 400 BC. 400 BC. The oldest copy that anyone possesses of any of his writings is from around 900 AD. That's a difference of 1,300 years. Tacitus, who was one of the most important historians of Rome, wrote around, uh, in around 100 A.D. But the oldest copy we have of his writings is around 1100 A.D. Are you doing the math? That's a span of about 1,000 years. Now, Homer. Homer is a little better. There was only a time span of about 500 years between his writings and the oldest copies. But he's an exception. And 500 years is still a long time. Now, by comparison, by comparison, the oldest copies we have of New Testament documents is, uh, I mean, this is quite a contrast here because the original New Testament documents were written around six, between 16 and 100 A.D., between 60, 60 and 100 A.D. Well, we have manuscript copies available that date from around 120 to the early 300. So do the math. That means that the maximum time difference between the original, the oldest original, uh, say in 50 AD, to the copies, to the oldest copies in 300 AD, is only about 250 years removed. And a lot of copies are even earlier than that. That's not a lot of time. Why is that significant? Why is that important? Because scholars have determined that that's not enough time for major changes to occur during the copy process. That's just not, it's not going to work. As a modern day example, we have the original Declaration of Independence and, and the Constitution, right, to compare copies to. If somebody, if somebody makes a change in a copy and says, here's the way the Declaration of Independence reads, and people say, no, that's wrong because we have the original to compare it to, then they can't get away with that. So that reflects the accuracy. Now let's talk about the number of copies because this is also important to help us establish the accuracy of the copies. Let's contrast the number of copies of New Testament documents with other ancient historical literature. So, um, again, it's, it's very similar to, to the first test. Uh, again, Homer is better than the other uh, philosophers. 
There are 643 copies of Homer's Iliad. 643 copies of Homer's Iliad. He was no doubt a widely read author back then. But again, he's an exception. Most of the other writers say Plato. There are seven, seven copies total of his works. And yet we accept his works as, as accurate, as correct. Right? We only have 20 copies of the works of Tacitus. We have only five copies of Aristotle's writings. And I could go on, but the numbers are very similar. Now, what about New Testament copies? Well, not 643, not even 1,000, but over 24,000 copies of the New Testament. And when you compare that against any other historical writing, beyond the shadow of a doubt, the Bible stands alone and passes a historical a bibliographic test with flying colors. I'm saying to you, there is no book like the Bible. God has preserved His Word. Jesus prophesied this. And in the verse we just read in Matthew 5, 18, the evidence supports this. And believers, this is why we trust God's Word. Let's go to the third point. And, and this is going to be found in Matthew 5, 19. And it's this, that the right view of Scripture recognizes that our place in the kingdom depends on our response to Scripture. Our place in the kingdom depends on our response, our individual response to Scripture. Look at Matthew 5, 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches, and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, according to Jesus, if he is a fulfillment and everything becomes true, becomes real through him, then everything changes. Morality changes. How we live our lives changes. Because to put it simply, Jesus is saying that to follow him means to follow the Bible, to follow the scripture. In his case, he's talking about the Old Testament you know, the, the Torah and the prophets. Uh, but it's to follow uh, the, the teachings of the Bible. And those, listen to what he's saying, those who follow Jesus and follow the teachings of Scripture will be considered important in the kingdom. But those who reject his teachings and those who teach others or encourage others or influence others not to follow Jesus and the teachings of the Scripture Will, will, will be considered less important in the kingdom. So it all boils, boils down to how we respond to Scripture, how we read Scripture, how we view it. Now, if you look at verse 19, look at that again. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least. Now that phrase, sets aside it's a, a phrase that was translated here in the, I'm using the NIV. Your Bible may read a little differently. Uh, it's translated as sets aside, can also be translated as loosen or relax. In other words, it's accurate to, according to Greek uh, lexicons that I consulted to read it this way. Therefore, anyone who loosens or relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do accordingly to do the same thing, to loosen or relax. 
Sometimes we try to take the sting out of God's commands. We try to relax it. We try to loosen it a little bit. And the problem, see, the problem was that it was not rather that the scribes and the Pharisees were going around telling people to break the law. They wouldn't do that. In fact, they kept adding, they kept adding laws. They, they weren't telling people to break the law or to ignore the law. But we, what we see them doing, and Jesus repeatedly addresses this, is that they were relaxing the law for themselves. This is what uh, you see Jesus addressing the rest of chapter 5, and we'll be talking about this in coming weeks. The scribes and the Pharisees had an amazing way of loosening God's laws for themselves. And you know what? I have to say, this is our temptation today. This is the same temptation that we have. This is a, the temptation of every single person. We see God's commands and, and we relax them. Those commands that maybe don't work for us. Like, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. We lower the standard, in other words, so that we feel like we're actually succeeding. We're actually keeping the law. We might try to relax uh, the law against uh, sexual sin or sexual morality because, you know, we say, oh, wait, no, we, all, we all have desires, we all have needs, and so it must be acceptable. Everybody is doing it. Uh, husbands and wives don't feel like they don't need to love each other and sacrifice for each other because surely God didn't mean that. Uh, he didn't mean that I really would have to give my life for my spouse and uh, besides God doesn't know what my husband is like or what my wife is like. We try to relax uh, perhaps our need to spend time in God's word or devotional time of reading and prayer. Uh, because you know what? God knows I need some downtime. and God can't possibly mean that I need to spend time in his word every day. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's like going overboard. We try to relax the command to, to have the attitude of Christ, the humility of Christ, and to put the interest of others ahead of uh, of ourselves. I mean, we all do this. We try to loosen the standards of God's word. We try to set them aside. And the problem with that as adults is that we're teaching our children to do the same thing. They see us cut corners. They see us relaxing. You know, they, they, they see what, what's going on in, in, in our lives. And then when they get to be in the, you know, teens and twenties and all of a sudden they're deconstructing and we're like, What's going on? You can't deconstruct. I taught you. No, they de people that de deconstruct today is because they see uh, a, a, a problem between the way that their parents speak and the way that they live. God help us because this is still a temptation for all of us. But the, the right view of Scripture says that our place in the kingdom depends on our response, whether we're going to be the most important or the least important depends on whether we are trying to really obey God and we truly love God. Something we talked about in one of our prayer meetings recently from 1 John, that we, if we love God, we're not going to feel, we're not going to act as if His commands are a burden to us. John, said, John says His commands are not burdensome to us. We're like, oh man, do I really have to go to church? Oh man, do I really have to forgive? Oh man, you know, we... We, we don't feel burdened by those when we, when we love God because those who love God will love His Word, will love His command. So we've got to be careful that our example inspires others to live by God's standards. And we don't cause somebody else to challenge God's Word or to compromise God's standards by the way that we live. 
I said, what we believe doesn't really matter. Our view of Scripture matters greatly. Let me leave you with one final point, and that's this. The right view of Scripture recognizes that to enter heaven, our righteousness must conform to Scripture. Our righteousness must conform to Scripture to enter heaven. What does this mean? Look at verse 20, Matthew 5, 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that comment would have been shocking to all the Jews that were listening because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law or the scribes, I mean, they were considered the most righteous people in Israel. In fact, I read that the Jews had a saying, if only two people go to heaven, one will be a scribe and the other a Pharisee. That's what they believed. So the Jews, when they heard Jesus say this, they must, they must have thought, well, if they can't get into heaven, what chance do I have? How can we? But Jesus is saying that if their behavior, which means doing what, what God wants as taught by Jesus, being obedient to God's command, if their behavior is not much better than that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, then they'll never be able to enter into heaven. Now, what does this mean? And does this mean that we can actually earn our salvation through obedience? No, the Bible makes it clear, and this is really the point. The Bible makes it clear that our salvation is by faith. It's through grace. It's a gift of God. So we respond in, in faith. And we receive salvation. As a result of that, we obey God because His, His commands aren't burdensome to us. So it's not a matter of, I have to obey or I'm not going to make it to heaven. No, you obey because God has, has forgiven you as a result of, what God, of the work that God has done. So the approach of the Pharisees was to, was to teach obedience to the law to a T. And they made up so many laws. There were over 600 laws. And a lot of them were just made up by, by the Pharisees. In fact, did you know they had a law that, you know, the, of course, they practiced the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath. They couldn't do any work uh, on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees, uh, they added a law to the commands that said that you could not spit during the Sabbath. Because you, if you spit, you might move some dirt and that would be considered plowing. So you couldn't spit. I mean, they had all kinds of crazy rules like that. And they, and they were wanting, they were wanting to, um, to acquire God's favor through that. Jesus said, no, no. I mean, it's good. He says, it's good that, that you're tithing. Because remember the Pharisee at the temple says, I, he was, you know, uh, you know, he wasn't the one who was beating his chest. He was the one who was raising his head and saying, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector because I tithe. I, I do all this. Jesus was like, look, it's good that you tithe, but you're neglecting mercy as well. And so the, the righteousness of the Pharisees was the righteousness that was just, you know, very uh, uh, stringent and very uh, dictated by uh, minute fulfillment of the of all the laws, thinking that they possibly good, which nobody really can't keep all the laws. Jesus said, no, the righteousness that I'm talking about is by trusting in Jesus for salvation. And then the good works are an outgrowth and 
overflow of that. Um, the Pharisees had changed many of God's commands. Like I said, Jesus said, you've heard it said that, uh, and we'll talk about this next time. Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, wait a minute. The Bible doesn't say love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It just says love your neighbor. But the Pharisees had added that. So again, they loosened commands for themselves and they made it hard on the people. And what Jesus taught was that those who belong to the kingdom of heaven are, you know, the Beatitudes we talked about, the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, the, the merciful. So in the new covenant, our righteousness is found in Jesus alone. In Jesus alone. This is important to emphasize. And this, this is a predominant theme in the rest of this Sermon on the Mount. So let me just finish by asking you this question. What is your view of Scripture? What is your view? Because the right view matters. It matters for you right now, for your place in the kingdom. It matters for your family, for your children, because they're watching. What is your view? It must be a view that goes beyond the intellectual to the practical. And it must be a view that is completely in Christ as a fulfillment of the law. And it must be a view that draws us, that motivates us, that moves us to, to obey Christ because he's a fulfillment of the law to obey the scripture today. God, for There's a reason that God has protected, has guarded the scriptures for all these years. It is not for us to set it aside. That's not the reason that God's word has been kept. It's not for us to loosen its standards, to relax its teachings, but it's for us to embrace it, to receive it, and to practice it. I'm going to invite you to pray with me as we conclude today. And as we pray, would you take a hard look at yourself and just answer the question to yourself. Practically speaking, what is my view of Scripture? I can say, oh, I believe it's the Word of God. But if we're not living out God's Word, then practically our view is that it's not really God's Word. So what is practically your view of Scripture? I pray that this teaching from Jesus will challenge us to have the right view of Scripture. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we gather every time we come together. We gather for the purpose of singing songs of worship to you and for the purpose of encouraging one another, as your word teaches us to do. Because seeing each other encourages us, it strengthens us. But Lord, we especially gather to center around the teachings of your word. Because your word is not an ordinary book. Your word is, is life-changing. There's a reason why all the attacks on your word have failed. And these attacks continue to today and will continue to fail. Because this is your word for us. Lord, I pray, first of all, that you would forgive us because I know that every one of us is guilty of what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law did. And that is to, we're guilty of wanting to relax, to set aside, to loosen the teachings of your word, to make them 
more palatable to us or to keep us from feeling guilty for not even attempting to obey your word. Forgive us for that. Lord, you know our hearts. Our hearts and our desires are to, to serve you, to love you. And the way we do that, Lord, our love for you is not just a, a feeling. It's certainly not a romantic type of a feeling, but our love for you is revealed in our obedience to your word. Help us to be obedient. Help us to love your word. Help us to take this word and let it challenge us today and throughout this week. For we pray in Jesus' name.